0: Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It's going to be our text of Scripture for today. I encourage you to follow along in your copy as I read... Let's remember what we are reading, what we are looking at here. It is the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. The title of our message is Walking in Unity. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. We come, church family, today to this second main section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It actually also happens to be the the second half. The book of Ephesians really divides up fairly nicely. Chapters 1 through 3 is the first section, and chapters 4 through 6 is the second section. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul explained God's work of salvation, and he explained what is true of those who are in Christ. If you want to know what God's work of salvation is, read Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then in chapters 4 through 6, the section that we're getting into today, Paul instructs the believers how they are to live in light of God's work of salvation, in light of who they are in Christ. Perhaps we could say it this way. If we wanted to put it really simply. Chapters 1 through 3 focuses on God's work, and chapters 4 through 6 focus on our work. Now, that might be oversimplifying it just a little bit, because even as we work, it is God who is at work in us. But chapters 1 through 3 focused on what God has done to save us, and then chapters 4 through 6, what we now do as people who are saved. And the first work that Paul addresses that we are to be engaged in as people who have experienced God's salvation is this work of maintaining the unity that exists in the body of Christ. Church Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, teaches us this. How we live matters, and it matters that we live in unity. How we live matters, and it matters that we live in unity. Really, that first part of that uh, main idea statement, how we live matters, it's kind of the main idea for all of chapter 4, 5, and 6. Every main idea statement that I may share with you uh, for every passage in chapters 4 through 6 could begin with those words, how we live matters. Again, whereas chapters 1 through 3 focus on what we must know and believe about God and salvation and about ourselves, chapters 4 through 6 focus on how that knowledge and those beliefs concerning God's work shapes our day-to-day lives. And the shaping effect is not unimportant. The practical side of the beliefs that we have It's not something that's just optional, that's there if we want to engage in them or not. Paul devotes half of his letter to instructing the believers how they are to live. Now, I want to share with you today three main truths from this passage, from verses 1 through 6. The first truth is really going to be an introduction to all of chapters 4 through 6. We need to spend a few minutes thinking about the general scriptural principle, the general scriptural teaching that how we live actually does matter. And then we'll move into the first specific area of living, Paul addresses, which is the unity which ought to characterize the church. So let me go ahead and give you truth number one, and we'll spend a few minutes talking about this truth as we kind of intro this second part of the letter to the Ephesians. Truth number one, our heavenly calling should result in heavenly walking. Our heavenly calling should result in heavenly walking. It's a very straightforward truth from God's Word. It's simple to say, and it's actually simple to understand. But as the saying goes, it's easier... There you go. Said than done. It's easier said than done. It's easy to say that our heavenly calling should result in heavenly walking. It's easy to say amen to a statement like that. But in the day-to-day stresses and strains and temptations and unexpected situations of life, walking out this truth is challenging to say the least and yet there's no denying it how we live matters to God we can't just ignore this truth look at verse 1 I therefore Paul writes a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called as we jump into this verse and we're going to spend some time on just this verse because it's so very important there's two key words that I want you to notice initially Um, Every word is important, but I want you to notice these two words. First, I want you to notice the word therefore. Therefore, the word therefore ought to always make us, when we read that we see that in Scripture, make us pause and look back before moving ahead. And that's really what we're going to do for a few minutes today. We're going to pause and we're going to look back as we get ready to move ahead in this letter. When Paul says therefore, he's warning the Ephesian believers to stop and to remember all that he has said in the letter thus far. We can summarize all he has said in this way, God has provided us with a free gift of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and he freely gives that salvation to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ for salvation, and everyone who is saved is reconciled to God and to one another. That's kind of the summary of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. The word therefore tells us to go back over and over and over again to chapters 1 through 3 as we'll see as we keep thinking about this particular truth. Second important word that I want you to notice is the word walk. The word walk. Um, I would actually encourage you, if you... Or somebody that underlines things in your Bible, uh, don't do it right now, but at some point, um, go through and underline all the times you see the word walk in, uh, in, in your copy of, uh, of Ephesians. Um, you may have a different translation that use the word different than walk, maybe live, because that's what he's talking about, but you find those words and you underline them. This word walk is very important both in this verse and in the rest of the letter. Paul uses the word walk as a metaphor for how we live. It's his way of putting into one word All the choices that we make throughout a day, all that we choose to think say and do from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep each day is what Paul is referring to when he talks about our walk. We saw this word walk two times already in chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 2 we were reminded that we once walked in the ways of this world, in the ways of Satan, and in the ways of our sinful flesh. And then in chapter 2 verse 10 Paul kind of gave a a foretaste of chapters 4 through 6 where he said that now that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, we are now to do the good works that He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then we see this word walk here at the beginning of chapter 4, and we're going to see it several more times throughout this letter. Seven times, in fact, throughout the letter of Ephesians, we see this word walk. Here we're called to walk in unity. As we work our way through the remaining chapters, we'll see that we're called to walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. How we walk matters. How we live matters. I think verse 1 provides us with four helps. I'm going to call them helps. I don't know if that's the best way to say that, but four helps as we consider the importance of how we live our lives. First, verse 1 helps us understand the manner of our heavenly walking. Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What what is this calling, church, to which we have been called? Simply put, it is the calling to salvation. Back in chapter 1, verse 18... You'll scan your eyes back there. Paul prayed that the believers would know, chapter 1, verse 18, would know what is the hope to which he has called you. Use that same word, called, there. What is that hope? It's the hope that refers to our salvation. This calling is God's call in our lives to himself, where we are saved from our sin, and the hope, the, 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 the expectation of everlasting life. This hope refers to our salvation and includes his sovereign work of predestining us, adopting us, redeeming us, and sealing us. Those truths that we learned about in chapter 1. It includes his powerful work of making us alive in Christ and reconciling us to God and to one another. Those wonderful truths we learned about in chapters 2 and chapter 3. We are to walk and live in a manner worthy of the salvation God has given to us. In other words, we could put it this way, God has graciously and powerfully rescued us from sin, so we ought not to go back to the sin that he has rescued us from. We ought not to walk in that sin anymore. We ought to walk in things like unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom. Remember that incredible statement Paul made to begin the main body of his letter. Go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3. Paul said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, where? In the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our calling is a heavenly calling. And therefore, Paul's saying in chapter 4, 5, and 6, our walking ought to be a heavenly walking. It ought to be evident in the way we treat our siblings, in the way we treat our parents, In the way we treat our children, in the way we treat our spouse, in the way we treat our neighbor, in the way we treat a co-worker or a classmate, in the way that we respond to temptations, such as temptations to sexual immorality, which Paul will talk about in this letter, in the way that we respond when someone hurts us, in the way that we spend our money, in the way that we work in our jobs, in the way we react when someone tells a dirty joke, in what we allow our eyes to see and our ears to hear. In fact, all of those things are things that Paul addresses in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Simply put, this verse is telling us that if we are Christians, then we ought to live Christian lives. That's why I said this, it's a simple thing to say, and it's really, that makes sense, right? If we're Christians, we ought to live Christian lives. But it is difficult. But if we belong to Jesus, our lives ought to look like Jesus. If we say, you may hear somebody say this, maybe today you think this. If we say it doesn't really matter how I live. All that matters is that I believe in Jesus and I've been saved and I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. Doesn't matter how I live. Well friends, that's like taking scissors out and cutting out chapters 4 through 6 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. 4 through 6 are just as inspired by the Holy Spirit as chapters 1 through 3. God saves us to change us, not to leave us the same. That's to miss the point of salvation. He changes our final destination for sure, but he also changes how we walk on our way to our final destination. We might not be in heaven yet and I long for that day when we are there, but heaven is in us right now through the power of the Holy Spirit, and by God's grace, heaven will be pouring out of us and our lives right here, right now, on this earth through the choices that we make each and every day. So verse 1 helps us understand the manner of our walking. It also helps us understand the, the movement of our heavenly walking. And by movement, I mean the flow or the order or the arrangement. see, so there's always a tendency in our hearts to get the movement or the order right. You may say, amen, we ought to live right. But if we get the order wrong, we'll wind up in hell. It's just the truth of the matter. We have to get the movement here right. And again, that word, therefore, helps us get the movement right. The right movement is from calling to walking, not from walking to calling. The right movement is from being blessed with salvation to walking worthy of salvation, not walking worthy of salvation, and then gaining salvation. In other words, walking worthy of salvation does not result in salvation. Please hear me say that. Salvation results in walking worthy. You see, the the other temptation, we might be tempted to cut out chapters 4 through 6 and say, I believe in Jesus, no matter how I live. The other temptation would be to cut out chapters 1 through 3 and say, hey, I got to live right. I got to put all these things into practice in chapters 4 through 6 and forget chapters 1 through 3 comes before chapters 4 through 6, Right? Let me put it this way. We walk worthily because we have been called, not so that we will be called by God to salvation. Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's writing to believers, they have already received God's call to salvation. And that's again where that word therefore is so important. Chapters 1 through 3 is already true of them. They have realized that they can never earn God's love. And so they have turned from their sin and turned to Jesus. And now in light of God's work of salvation in them, which was a free gift, now they can and should and desire to do good works. Remember chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of our works. The movement, the right order is this, believe in Jesus for salvation and then live to please God, not the other way around. So let me pause right here because I think there's a lot of people, there a lot of people around us, maybe it could be someone here today that have this order wrong. And, and I, can't, I can't walk past the passage like this and not just pause and, and give you opportunity to think about you and your life. If today you are trying to walk worthy of God, worthy of salvation in order to earn God's love, in order to earn salvation, please stop doing that. It's like running into a million mile an hour wind. Not only are you not going to make any progress, you're going to end up going the other direction. Don't do that. Turn from your sin by turning to Jesus. Ask Him to do for you what your good works will never be able to do for you. Receive through faith in Jesus God's free gift of salvation. Believe in him. Receive that gift and be saved. And then, then you can and you will walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So verse 1, we see the right manner of our walking. We see the right movement of our walking. We also, uh, this verse also helps us understand the right means of our heavenly walking as Christians. Remember what we said earlier, walking, walking according to the calling to which God has called us, it is not easy. Easy to say, not easy to do. So where is it, Christian, that we find the power and strength to fight against temptation? To not walk according to the calling to which we've been called. Again, we go back to chapters 1 through 3. We go back to the truth of the gospel. The gospel is explained in chapters 1 through 3. It's not only the means by which we are saved, it is the means by which we continue to then walk according to the calling to which God has called us. Church, even though we're finished with Ephesians chapter one through three as far as sermons go in our series through uh, the, the 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 book of Ephesians, we're not we can't be done with chapters one through three in a way that we just forget about them. Please hear me loud and clear. Hear Paul loud and clear. Hear the Holy Spirit who is inspiring Paul to write this loud and clear. Therefore, it means Christian, go back to the gospel over and over and over again. We're never finished learning about, meditating upon, and needing to be reminded of God's work of salvation before every chapter, before every passage, before every verse in the rest of Ephesians, go back to the gospel and hear God say, therefore, live this way. Therefore, do this. Therefore, don't do this. We don't just need chapters 1 through 3 to get saved. We need chapters 1 through 3 to live as saved people. The gospel is the most important thing that lost people need to hear. And the gospel is the most important thing that saved people need to hear. It is the means of our heavenly walking. And, and then fourth, I told you four things under this first truth. The fourth thing, understand, we can understand from verse one, the right motivation of our heavenly walking. We, got the, we know the power, the power is going to come from the Holy Spirit by the gospel living in us. But are you ever like me where you just kind of don't want to? <laughs> right? It's hard and you know that God will give you strength, but oh, it's, it, 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 sometimes it can kind of feel burdensome. Let's think about that for a moment. What is it that is going to motivate us to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called? What is it that's going to motivate us to tell the truth when lying would be so easy in that situation? What's going to motivate us to forgive when holding a grudge seems like the fair thing to do? What's going to motivate us to sacrificially love your wife or respectfully submit to your husband when she or he hasn't been very kind to you that day? What's going to motivate us to speak words to your child, to our children that build up rather than tear down when you've gotten on my very last nerve, you pushed my last button, all you've done is disobey. What in that moment is going to motivate us to speak words that build up rather than tear down? What's going to motivate us to work hard and diligently for a boss that might be harsh and overbearing What's going to motivate us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil when everyone around us seems to be having so much fun just giving in to his schemes? Again, all of those things come from chapters 4 through 6. This is the walk that is worthy of our calling. And sometimes we just don't want to. It's not easy. So what's going to motivate us? Guess what word I'm about to say again? Therefore, 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 it's there for a reason. Our motivation is chapters 1 through 3. Our motivation is God's work of salvation. Our motivation is the gospel. We walk worthily out of an overflow of thankfulness and praise to God for his amazing gift of salvation. We walk through chapters 1-3 through and we're so overwhelmed with how much God has loved us, it leaves us saying, I don't want to do anything but live for the glory and the honor to walk worthy of this calling to which you have called me. Yes, walking worthy of the gospel is hard, but it is not burdensome. Living for the glory of God only becomes burdensome when we lose sight of chapters 1 through 3. When we lose sight of the gospel. The commands of chapter 4 through 6 will only be burdensome if we forget about that good and gracious and mighty and powerful work of God that we have been studying and meditating upon in chapters 1 through 3. The reality is that the world around us will not like it when we walk heavenly. It's going to be hard, which sometimes makes us not want to to walk that way. Proof in point is Paul himself. In verse 1, Paul reminds them that he is a prisoner. He's already told them that once in chapter 3. Now he reminds them of that again. He's a prisoner for the Lord. His imprisonment is a result of following Jesus, of walking worthy of the calling to which he had been called. Paul's allegiance, therefore, we see, is to someone higher than any earthly government or political leader. He has pledged his allegiance to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. And if that means prison for him, Paul says, so be it. He has the gospel of Jesus motivating him to walk worthily, no matter the cost. And for Paul, it is a joy. It is not a burden. Go back and read chapters 1 through 3. Does that sound like someone, Paul writing chapters 1 through 3, does that sound like someone who is burdened by following Jesus or by someone who is full of awe and amazement and thankfulness and joy? The temporary discomfort and inconvenience of being a prisoner in Rome could not compare in Paul's mind to the eternal joy of belonging, belonging to Christ and enjoying all of the blessings that come as a result of union with him and obedience to him. The Apostle Paul is motivated to walk heavenly not because of earthly comfort and earthly reward, but because of his heavenly calling to which nothing on this earth can compare. Church, may the same be true of us. So we look back to the gospel for the right manner, the right movement, the right means, and the right motivation of walking this heavenly walk, walking according to our heavenly calling. How we live matters. Now as an introduction to all of chapter 4, 5, and 6, I really do encourage you, as we work through chapters 4 through 6, go back and reread chapters 1 through 3. Somehow work that into your weekly discipline of of reading, or or, or read a chapter one week, chapter one, and the next week read chapter two, and the next week week read chapter three, and then go back and do it again. Therefore, we can't lose sight of the therefore. But it is also the introduction to the first specific area of heavenly walking to which we are called in Ephesians. Paul jumps right into a specific area of our lives that we need to walk heavenly, so to speak. And that is that we are called to walk in unity. It matters, church, that we live in unity. Truth number two, our walking must be in the direction of unity. We have a heavenly calling, so our walking must be a heavenly walking. And in what direction do we walk in? The first thing Paul says, we walk towards unity. We walk in the direction of unity. And we've been learning a lot about unity already. Chapters two through three were all about the creation of unity between Jew and Gentile. Remember, remember what we've learned? We who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has made us both one who are in Christ Jesus. Together we are citizens of God's kingdom, members of His family, building blocks of His temple. God the Father has worked through the death of Jesus and the power of the Spirit to unite His people into one people, one body, one church. And therefore, we ought to walk in unity with one another. We ought to live in such a way that the unity purchased by the blood of Jesus is maintained in our fellowship within the church. And therefore, we ought to walk in unity with one another. Look at verses 2-3. through Paul calls on the believers to walk, what does he say, with all humility and gentleness, With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's take this in three parts. First, notice that walking in the direction of unity means walking with a disposition which undergirds unity. This kind of bedrock part, this thing that's got to be true in us if unity is going to come out from us. What is this disposition which undergirds unity? It is humility and gentleness. Another word that you could translate gentleness might be meekness. You could say meekness or gentleness. Humility and gentleness. Humility means putting the interests of others before yourself. It's the opposite of arrogance, of of selfishness. A humble person thinks first how to serve others rather than thinking first how I can get what I want in my own way. Humility is a choice to let your own desires take a back seat to the desires of others for their benefit, for their good. That's what humility is. What about gentleness or meekness? We might be tempted to think that meekness means weakness. Someone who lets people treat them like a doormat, just kind of lays down and doesn't do anything, don't have strength to stand up for themselves. That's actually the opposite of of what it means to be meek. What it means to be gentle. The word, the word means strength under control. That's what this word means. Strength under control. This was a word that was used in this in the original language in, in this time period. It was used to refer to the taming of an animal. This is what this word was used. So so think about. Think about a, a horse, right? Think about a, a horse that hasn't been broken yet. It's a wild horse at that point. Hasn't been broken, hasn't been tamed. That horse is powerful and out of control, and causes chaos and destruction. But a broken horse, a horse that has been tamed, is under control and doesn't cause chaos or destruction. Is the broken horse less powerful after he's been broken than before he was broken? No, just as powerful. But now it's power, it's strength that is under control. His power has been brought under control for the good, for the good of those around him, so he doesn't hurt anyone. And that's what this word gentleness, meekness means. It's a necessary ingredient, ingredient in walking in unity. Do you know what? You know what humility and gentleness looks like in a person? Do you, do you know what that looks like? You want to see somebody today that's perfect in humility and meekness? We look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. in fact, Jesus described himself that way. He said, "I am gentle." And lowly of heart. I'm, I'm meek and humble. That's who I am. But let's think about who it is that was saying those words. Jesus was the most powerful person in the Garden of Gethsemane when that mob arrested him. And he walked away in chains. Jesus was the most powerful person in the high priest's courtyard when he was blindfolded and struck with punches repeatedly. Jesus was the most powerful person there on that hill called Golgotha where soldiers who had whipped him and mocked him then nailed him to a cross. There's no doubt Jesus could have wiped them out with one word. But he didn't. He put our interests before his own. He showed power under control for our good, for our salvation. Jesus unified us through his disposition of humility and gentleness. And so that same disposition must undergird our walking in unity. Church, for the sake of unity, will we put the interests of others before ourselves for the sake of unity will we refrain from proving someone wrong with whom we disagree simply to show our power will we exercise strength under control when it's tempting to display our strength for self-promotion for the sake of unity will we have an others focused disposition the second we notice that walking in the direction of unity means walking with interaction which breeds unity We have this disposition which undergirds unity, humility and gentleness. But then we see that we're called to this interaction with one another, which breeds unity. Paul says, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, putting these two together, because they're very similar. You you can't really have one without the other. If you have the one, you're going to have the other. If you don't have one, it's because you don't have the other. Patience and bearing one, with one another in love. And they show up on the level of our interactions with each other. A helpful definition of this word patience, which I came across, is this. Being able to bear up under provocation. Being poked, <laughs> being provoked, and, and not, not retaliating. In other words, interacting with patience means not being short-tempered when someone says something or does something that irritates you or hurts you. It means waiting to respond so that you don't make matters worse by blowing up or saying something in the moment that ends up coming out very hurtful towards that other person. And then that next phrase is very similar. It says bearing with one another in love. What does that mean? Well, to bear with one another means to put up with. That's literally what it means, to put up with that person, to patiently endure, to patiently go the distance is another way to say it, with that person. It means to stick with that person, even if it would be easy to throw in the towel because of something he or she did or said that's put a strain on the relationship. It means to bear with someone when their words or their actions feel unbearable. And notice that we don't do this dragging our feet, mumbling and groaning. We do it in love. We patiently bear with one another out of a genuine desire to act for the good of that person. In that moment where it's so easy to think about me, myself, and I, how I feel, how that person has hurt me, to bear with them in love is to actually turn it around and with humility and meekness, think about them and what is good for that person. It's a good place, I think, to be reminded of Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3. We studied it last week. Remember, he prayed that we would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit to be able to comprehend Christ's love. Church, that was not just a pie-in-the-sky prayer. It wasn't just a a, a cool way of ending the first section of his letter. He prayed that prayer with the heavenly walk of chapter 4, verses 2-3 through in mind. He prayed that prayer knowing that there were people who... Even, even who professed faith in Christ who didn't like him. Go read uh, Philippians chapter 1. There were people who were preaching Christ out of rivalry towards him. They were preaching Christ in a way to make him angry. He experienced this. He experienced hurtful words within the body of Christ. That was not just a pie-in-the-sky prayer. It is a prayer that we pray to help us when we are in the trenches of dealing with someone who has hurt us, and yet for the sake of unity, we know that we're not to retaliate in anger, but bear with that person in love. The only way we can do that is if we know the love of Christ. The only way we're going to walk heavenly in those situations is to know the, the love that came from heaven. To walk in the love of Christ as we interact with those who in that moment don't deserve to be shown love. We must remember that we too have been shown a love that we absolutely do not deserve. The love of Jesus. And when our interactions are characterized by patience and by bearing with one one another in love, our interactions will breed unity within the body of Christ. Of course, the opposite is the case as well. When we don't interact this way, when we don't walk this way, when we are short-tempered, when we're quick to gossip because somebody hurt us so we gossip about them, or we're quick to throw hurtful words back at that person, we can only expect the opposite of unity. We can only expect division within the church. Third, in this thinking about, um, thinking about this unity, this direction of unity, this passage also teaches us that we are to have this aspiration to maintain unity right so so we see this disposition of 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 under that undergirds our, our unity that humility and that meekness and, and then and then we see the, that patience and bearing with one another in love that's that interaction with one another is going to breed the unity but then this this passage also teaches us to aspire to maintain unity right we need to make sure we notice what paul is assuming and that is going to happen among god's people like the Think about what Paul is assuming here. He is assuming that there are going to be times when our walk is not very heavenly. He's assuming that there will be times when, when we are arrogant and harsh and hurtful towards one another. And he's assuming that because he knows that although we have been sealed for heaven, we are not there yet. Although the power of sin over us has been destroyed, the presence of sin still remains. Although we have been ripped out of Satan's grip, go back and read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we can still fall prey to Satan's temptations. Go read chapter 6, the last half. As he will say in verse 13 of chapter 4, there is still some maturing that needs to take place within the body of Christ, within our lives as Christians, within the church. And remembering this, remembering kind of what we can expect is going to happen, It's going to help us not be surprised when when a brother or sister in Christ hurts us. Listen, they're not perfect in their walk, just like you're not perfect in your walk, just like I'm not perfect in my walk. And so we don't want that to happen, but we shouldn't be shocked when those things happen. When someone says something that, that rubs us the wrong way, that hurts, listen, we're all works in progress. But remembering our imperfection also helps us not become lazy. Instead, it'll help us aspire to maintain unity because we know there's still work to do. There's still progress to be made. When you aspire to something, you long for it so much that you do whatever it takes to attain it. And that's what we're called to in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager means to be zealous, to enthusiastically go after something, to make every effort to go in that direction. Church, we are to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the unity that God Himself created in us by the power of His Spirit who unites us through the blood of Christ to our Heavenly Father. If unity takes patience and forbearance, then that's what we do. If unity takes forgiveness, that's what we do. If unity takes keeping our mouth shut in a certain situation, that's what we do. If unity takes humbly apologizing for something that we've done wrong, that's what we do. And we do so. So, as we remember, the bond of peace which unites us is the blood of Jesus. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, we go back to chapter 2. We've been brought near by the blood of his cross. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That word bond there in the bond of peace is the same root word that Paul uses to describe himself as a prisoner. And as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but think that perhaps it's almost as though Paul reminded them of his chains as an illustration to then say they have been chained to one another in the bonds of peace. And instead of pulling against the chain of that unity, they ought to make every effort to polish it to preserve it, to maintain it, for that bond of peace was purchased by the blood of Christ. It is a precious, precious thing. Brothers and sisters, our heavenly walking must be in the direction of unity within a, in the church, and it is worth every bit of effort that it takes. The world is watching, and Jesus said that the world would know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. By God's grace may He give us the strength to have that disposition which undergirds unity, that interaction with one another which breeds unity, and the aspiration to maintain unity. Now perhaps you're wondering why unity is so important in the church why why is that so important? Oh we could we could take a long time and we could list all sorts of reasons. In fact, I've mentioned a few of those as we've we've been walking through here, but Paul gives them one reason. He gives them one really important reason in verses four through six. Why is unity among God's people so important? It's because of the unity of God. The last and final truth I want you to, to see here in this passage is this. Our unity is rooted in God's unity. This is really simple to see. Verses four through six, they're really just telling us one thing. That our unity is rooted in God's unity. He gives a list in verses 4 through 6, but I want you to notice the word that gets repeated seven times throughout this list one, 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 one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is the point of that list in verses 4, 5, and 6? It is to highlight the unity of God. God has united His people. Why? Because He is a united God. We are to pursue unity because God is united. He is united in who He is, and He is united in what He has done. If you examine this list, you could put each of these words into one of two categories. The category of who God is, and a category of what God has done. This list contains the three persons of God, and it contains the plan of God's salvation. We see one Spirit in verse 4, one Lord. That's what Paul uses, a word he uses to talk about Jesus in verse 5. And we see one God and Father in verse 5. Paul mentions in, verse, uh, in each person of the Trinity, and he does so in a way that highlights their unity and thus our unity. If we have been sealed and filled with the one Spirit, and believed and submitted our lives to the one Lord Jesus, and if we have been adopted by the one Father And if that Father, Son, and Spirit are actually all one, united God, then by all means we who belong to God ought to walk as one, ought to walk in unity. And then notice those other words. One body refers to the church, the people who have been saved. One hope is referring to our salvation. We already talked about that. Paul repeats those words calling and called. One faith is the doctrine of our salvation. And when baptism is the inward cleansing as the Holy Spirit fills us along with that outward symbol, that sign, we go into the water, and we come up again as a symbol of salvation. Put all those things together, body, hope, faith, and baptism, what do you have? You have God's work of salvation. That's what you have. And so if God has only one plan of salvation, then by all means, we who have entered into this one salvation ought to walk as one. We ought to walk in unity. There is one God. There is one plan of salvation. Therefore, our unity is rooted in God's unity, which means that if we as Christians choose not to walk in the direction of unity, we're walking away from God. Church, let's not walk away from God. Let's walk in the direction of, of gospel unity. Let's let the gospel of Christ permeate every area of our lives so the unity of heaven will pour out of us like a fountain in a desert. The world is dry around us. They need to be made alive in Christ and they will be attracted to Him as they see our unity with one another. What is it today, Christian, that you need to do to maintain unity in the body of Christ? Will you put it off? Will you do it half-heartedly, dragging your feet? Or will we do it eagerly? Will we eagerly do what is necessary to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Church, how we live matters. And it matters that we live in unity. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this passage of your Word. Thank you we get to spend some time today examining Your precious Word. Father, thank You for the Gospel that calls us to salvation. Thank You for the Gospel that shows us how we are to live, that gives us the strength to live out the calling to which You have called us. Thank You for the Gospel of Jesus that forgives us when we fail You. Father, help us to Consider our lives today. Have we trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? If we have, are we living out that salvation in every area of our lives? And specifically today, are we living in unity? Father, help us examine our hearts. Show us any sin that's there. Help us to run to You for forgiveness. And help us to run to you for the strength to walk in your unity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.